Okay, so friends, welcome, welcome, welcome. I have the happy pleasure of introducing Chris Oldfield, who is a, a, a dear colleague who befriended me when I was on my triennial at Cambridge. So he is a research associate at the Faraday Institute of Science and Religion. Uh, that is an institute at Cambridge University. Uh, and he has all of these super reputable bona fides. So he's a, a philosopher um, at Trinity College, Cambridge, also at King's College, London. He's finishing up his, his PhD has been submitted, um, I think to King's College, London, right? Um, and he speaks all over on um, about issues related to science and religion. And I knew that he and I were going to be friends because we went to this Thai restaurant and we solved all of the world's problems. It only took us about three hours, but we were we solved them all. And he stayed super late, missed his train, and he became my friend. And I said, hey, you got to talk to New Haven. You got you to gotta visit us via Zoom in New Haven. So I'm just so happy, uh, Chris, that you're here Zooming with us. And I'm also grateful for the, the spirit and the hospitality of, of the Faraday Institute. Uh, for those who were here last month, Graham Budd, the director of the Faraday, uh, he spoke. And the rest of the semester, we're having a bunch of folks um, all, all the all the all the stars from the Faraday will be speaking. So, uh, friends, uh, I turn it over to you, Chris, and take it away. Okay. Um, greetings, everyone. It's a great pleasure and a joy to be with you. I fear the lunatics may be running the asylum today, but uh, Ben, it's a delight. Thank you for the invitation. Um, ben, just a bit of timekeeping. Could I just confirm how long you'd like me to speak for and how long you'd like for Q&A? So at one o'clock, everyone is going to be spirited away to the okay. hospital floors and clinics and classrooms. And also this gang, they are a chatty, talkative gang. So okay. if you stop at 20 minutes of or 15 minutes of, that will be great because we got we have rich discussion to, to have to, to be had. Okay, so I, I'm not entirely sure what 20 minutes of means, but I'll, if I speak for about 20 minutes and then we'll open it up. Yes, <laughs> 30, 20, well, 30 me, minutes. Okay, oh, 20, 30 minutes. Okay, I shall relax. Um, well, here we go. Let me share my screen. Can you see that? Yep. And uh, let me try to press play. How's that? Beautiful. Okay. Uh, well, it is a great joy to be with you, folks. Um, and my name is Chris, uh, Chris Oldfield. I'm a philosopher at the uh, Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. And it's a great pleasure to be with you at this um, meeting of the Yale Programme for Medicine, Spirituality and Religion. I'm delighted to... Um, uh, share some thoughts with you. Um, ben said not to bring a paper, but just to um, share a theme and open it up for discussion. So something I've been working on in recent months is uh, a paper called When a Foster's Part, um, which is a paper within a current discussion that's going on in London uh, and has been going on for a few years now um, in the UK uh, under the title of the Metaphysics of Pregnancy. 
And so I guess um, I've given this the subtitle Dispatches from the Bump Debate um, to, uh, and what I hope to do is just to open up a kind of a book report on what's happening and what this discussion is. And then I'd like to see what you think the relevance could be for your practices. Okay, um, so let's start with um, a confession. Most of my knowledge uh, comes from cartoons at one level, and here's a cartoon on the metaphysics of pregnancy. Dear diary, it seems the domestic overseers are plotting against me. Their plans somehow relate to the anniversary of my escape from the womb. I'm still haunted by the memories of how I came to be incarcerated in that amniotic attica. With every potential man for himself. I've reached the target objective thanks to the peerless intrepidity I developed at testicular boot camp. But it was a trap. I was imprisoned in that uterine gulag for nine grueling months. Day 171. I've sprouted another finger, counting the one from yesterday. I'm up to 11. As the months of solitude passed, I began to go insane. It seemed my prison cell was getting smaller and smaller. I was quite sure that soon I would be dead. But then, a miracle. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. I rushed to freedom, but suddenly I was ambushed by a mysterious man in white. Man in white. Of course, he must be the higher professional of whom they spoke. He failed to thwart my escape into the outside world, and now, one year hence, he's returning to rectify his mistake and put me back in the womb. A little bit of um, fun to begin with from the Family Guy series. Uh, Stewie's uh, metaphysics of pregnancy leaves a lot to be desired, but I want to show it just to show that uh, metaphysics is always latent under the surface in uh, in our views of what's going on in pregnancy. And this is a book report on a project that's been going on under the auspices of the title BUMP. So the BUMP Research Group, Better Understanding the Metaphysics of Pregnancy, got started in 2018, 2019, uh, with Elslane Kingmer, who's a wonderful philosopher who was down in the University of Southampton and now Professor of um, Philosophy of Medicine, I think, uh, Salvi Professor in King's College London. And she's been, in recent years, promoting... Uh, a really spirited debate and a, a, a slew of papers really have come out of this work um, and promoting a resurgence of interest in better understanding the metaphysics of pregnancy. To give just a sense of um, the output, um, this is already just 2023 uh, from the website. Um, you'll see it, there's been quite a, um, a wide-ranging uh, uh, series of outputs and real conversation um, starters and game changers in this field. It all started back in 2018 with a paper she wrote called Lady Parts on the Metaphysics of Pregnancy uh, and another one in the philosophy journal Mind, um, which is one of the major philosophy journals in the world in 2019, Were You a Part of Your Mother? Um, basically, what I want to do is give you a sense of what that debate was all about and then open it up for questions and discussion. And first thing to raise is the subject of metaphysics. Um, these things are one that philosophers have a way of using uh, words in technical ways, but you, you shouldn't be afraid of it. Um, philosophers sometimes talk about methic, uh, sorry, ethics as how one ought to live, um, what one ought to do. Uh, epistemology is what one ought to believe and 
how we can know things. Um, we're not talking here about the ethics of pregnancy or what we should do when we're pregnant or how we ought to treat pregnant people. Nor are we talking about the epistemology of pregnancy. How do I, how do I know whether I'm pregnant or not or, or someone is pregnant? Um, but the metaphysics of pregnancy is about what pregnancy itself is, the state of being pregnant. Um, and I just, in this context of, uh, um, uh, of your group, um, the Medicine, Spirituality and, and Religion group, I gather is an interdisciplinary group. Um, and I'm reminded of some words of wisdom from uh, Joseph Henry Woodger from 1929 in his book, Biological Principles. He was discussing at the time something that someone called Dr. Haldane, uh, I confess I'm not entirely sure which Haldane it was, uh, was raising um, for physiologists to think about. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, and this is what Woodrow wrote in um, a section of that book. He said, Dr. Haldane is asking people not to give up their methods of investigation, which are the same as his own, but the intellectual background of naive materialism. Um, now, I have nothing against materialism in this talk, but I think uncritical and naive materialism is, is going to be a problem. Um, he's asking them, in the words of Professor Whitehead and other of his contemporaries, to become philosophical and enter into a thorough criticism of their own foundations. But, Woodger says, physiologists in general never trouble themselves about such things because they often suppose themselves to be above something called metaphysics, when in fact they're only a little above it, being up to the neck in it. They've been taking matter as ultimate, but without being very clear about what they meant by this. And they've been trying to make the facts about organisms fit this notion. Um, I'm very sympathetic to Woodger's point of view that those who pretend to be above metaphysics are very often uh, just... Um, just just a little above it, um, usually up to their neck in it. And in particular, whatever your view of matter is, as my background's in physics, and I can tell you that uh, it's a lot more confusing uh, than the old Lego block picture, uh, the building blocks of matter. Um, but nonetheless, the problem here is not going to be what your view of matter is, but your understanding of how organisms fit into that notion. Um, which brings me to pregnancy. Uh, what are we talking about pregnancy? Pregnancy is a phenomenon um, which doesn't uh, occur everywhere in the world, um, but is this, the, the metaphysics of pregnancy debate is about organisms. It's going to be restricted to organisms. But not any old organism uh, is pregnant in the way that um, Elselaine Kingra and the bump group are going to be interested in. So fish, for example, um, lay eggs which develop into uh, other fish. Um, what we're interested in by pregnancy is the state of pregnancy as one organism developing in, inside another. And that might happen in borderline strange ways in, in some mammals like marsupials, where there's an external um, pouch. But most of interest um, here is the placental mammal, a mammalian pregnancy, which uh, where one organism is gestated within another one. Um, so dolphins and uh, human beings are just two instances of this. Uh, okay, so we're, we're focusing on organisms, specifically mammalian pregnancy, uh, within placentals um, in particular. When we're thinking about the metaphysics of pregnancy, there's a couple of things we might mean. So let me just distinguish two things. You might be thinking of the processes of pregnancy, the processes and stages of a pregnancy. Um, and that's not going to be the centre of the bump debate, actually. When we're talking about um, pregnancy, we might be interested in the various physiological, immunological and developmental processes that are involved in a typical period of pregnancy, whatever its temporal duration. But the bump group is going to be focused on not the occurrence of processes of pregnancy, but the kind of thing that endure pregnancy. 
So the parts of a pregnant whole organism that is enduring, or at least sometimes capable of enduring uh, the processes of pregnancy. So in speaking of pregnancy um, here, the focus is specifically on the vaguely boundaried parts um, of a foster, that's a term of art, um, for a fetus or, or a zygote or whatever else may be in gestation, and the parts of a gravida, um, which is a term of art um, for uh, the pregnant whole organism that is enduring the pregnancy. Okay, so we're not talking about the processes of pregnancy, but the parts of a pregnant whole organism. Um, so a lot of people, when they think of the um, metaphysics of pregnancy or the physiological processes of pregnancy, uh, might think of the various stages of pregnancy, and they might represent it in a, in a picture a bit like this. Um, these pictures are um, of interest in their own right, and the bump group has been quite critical of the ways in which these kind of depictions um, uh, obscure actually what's at the heart of their debate, which is the relation between the foster or whatever is in gestation and the gravida, namely the maternal gestating organism um, at each stage of the pregnancy. Uh, you might think what is missing from Stewie Griffin's depiction and also this kind of cartoon is precisely the mother. Um, the mother is used as merely a kind of spaceship or a container for this other thing to take up space in. Just one final terminological point. So we've talked about metaphysics um, and we've talked about pregnancy. Um, the terms of the bump debate take place in a crossover between Latin and uh, Danish, actually. So the term foster um, is a term from uh, Danish case notes, medical case notes, uh, for um, whatever is in gestation. OK, and the term gravida or gravida is a Latin term um, for, for the pregnant organism. Um, so just a couple of quotes here. Foster will be used as a term for anything that the gravida can be pregnant with. Um, so anything from an early embryo, perhaps a zygote, up to a fetus about to be born. Um, this does not imply that there aren't really important differences and distinctions between zygotes, early embryos and term fetuses, but merely in terms of their meriological relationship to the gravida, they can be treated alike. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful. Uh, meros is Greek for part. OK, so... When we're talking about the meriological relationships, we're not talking about um, the Virgin Mary. Someone I heard someone think that I was talking about Maryology. Um, Maryology um, is about the logic of part-whole relations. Okay, so the the central um, question of the bump debate and the discussion for better understanding the metaphysics of pregnancy is going to be about whether fosters are parts of a gravender. Um, okay, and the bump debate is about part-whole relations. It's about when parthood occurs. It, it can be put um, in slogan form like this um, in Suki Finn's article for the Eon magazine, a wonderful article um, that Suki Finn uh, wrote. She's part of this group, Bun or Bump. Very roughly, is a case of pregnancy, a case where, where a maternal organism, be it a human or a dolphin, um, has a kind of bump in their body or a bun in the oven. Um, that's that's the kind of slogan way of putting it. Does the mother contain the fetus or is it a part of her? Uh, so just to be clear here, when we speak about the metaphysics of pregnancy, um, very often people uh, have been interested in questions about personhood, okay, and the personal identity um, question, um, questions about when does a foster become a person? Right. Um, we might think in the human case, when does a foster, uh, when when is a foster, or when are fosters, when do they come to be conceived as parts of a person or or, or a person in their own right? Um, 
The bump debate is focused on a deeper question, which is when are Foster's parts of a gravida? Um, so here's Kingmer saying, note in particular that claiming that the fetus is a part of its gestator does not in the absence of significant further premises entail that it is not also a person and or an organism in its own right. Note too that no moral conclusions follow from the metaphysical claim alone that a fetus is a part of its mother. It's, for example, entirely compatible with the partner view that there are significant moral differences between the fetus um, and other parts of the organism. You might think of the potential that's within that um, the fetus, for example, to become a person. But if question one is when are fosters parts of a gravida, you might have another question that isn't about parthood, but about personhood. When do fosters become persons? And there are going to be legal and moral issues here about the status of a foster as a person. Um, and, and that's not to say these are irrelevant issues, but most people, when they think about um, pregnancy and philosophical issues, they usually talk about these moral and legal and ethical concerns about the treatment of um, fosters uh, and uh, whether they deserve to be treated as having the legal rights of, of persons in some sense. Um, but that's that's not at the heart of the issue for the bump debate. Just a word on that, the so-called personal identity debate <clears throat> um, it actually will turn on significant questions about what the status of personhood is and when a foster becomes a, a bearer of that status, the rights of a person. Um, so here's the wonderfully named Clive Staples Lewis in 1945, just pointing out that what I so proudly call myself can often become merely the meeting planes, place for trains of events I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes have become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism. I am not in my natural state nearly so much as a person as I like to believe. Uh, that's in a section on the Christian idea of God. And if there are also legal and ethical questions about personhood, there's also historical questions about how we became interested in the notion of a person in the first place. And there I would recommend a, a wonderful um, philosopher in London, Adam Ferner, his work on a genealogy of the person concept in uh, his book on organisms and personal identity is absolutely fantastic. He's got a chapter there well worth reading. Um, so if there are, are legal and moral issues here about the status of personhood, um, there are also theological issues for those um, with ears to hear about, um, well, motherhood, basically. Uh, you could say, um, if sorry, this is the wrong way around. There's a theological question about when do persons become fosters? Um, if you're interested in, in, in that sort of question, here's a wonderful piece of art on a, um, on a street near where I live in London. Um, gives a, a gist to that question. But returning to not the theological question of when a person becomes a foster, not the moral question of when a foster becomes a person, but to the metaphysical question, the meriological question of when are fosters parts of a gravida? That is, when are the vaguely boundary parts um, that constitute the matter of a fetus, for example, when are those parts parts um, of, a, of a pregnant whole organism that is enduring pregnancy? That's the question at the bump debate. Okay, so what then is the relationship between the fetus and the gestating organism? Again, we're talking about the metaphysical relationship here. We're not talking about the psychology of attachment or the phenomenology of a transformative experience or the ethics of love. We're talking about metaphysical um, relations here. Kingma in her Lady Parts essay says, I shall argue that the embryo or fetus um, is not merely contained by or inside the maternal organism, but is a part of that maternal organism maternal organism fetuses are literally lady parts oh here she is in the 2019 paper she distinguishes two views she calls them the containment view 
um, or and the parthood view. So according to the containment view, the fetus is not a part of, but is merely contained within or surrounded by the gestating organism. According to the parthood view, the fetus is a part of the gestating organism. Um, you might just pause here and notice how much work the word merely is doing here. Logically, the, the containment view is actually quite hard to make sense of. It actually builds in the negation of the parthood view, and that's important. Um, so the parthood view is the view that the foster is part of the gravida, um, or the fetus is a part of the, um, the gestating organism. The containment view is that the, it's not the case that the foster is a part of the gravida, but it is the case that the foster is merely contained within or surrounded by the gravida. I don't want to get stuck in the weeds here, but here's the rough idea. Some people cash out the containment view by speaking about a fish in an aquarium, saying that the relationship between um, a fetus or a foster, whatever's in gestation, and the maternal organism <clears throat> is one of mere in the way that, say, a fish is merely inside an aquarium. Um, here's a random aquarium you can buy on Amazon. And it points out this is suitable for fish. And I think that the, if you think about it, um, uh, the physiology of the situation, um, any, anyone who knows anything about, say, the placental interface of maternal and um, fetal cells and tissue is going to see it's just nothing like that um, kind of picture. And that might be suitable for fish, but not for the pregnant organism case. Some people cash out the containment view by metaphors, um, by talking about metaphorical buns in the oven or tubs of yogurt. Um, so here's the containment view, which Kingman says is widely assumed in the literature, but... Um, that's hard to hard to say, but she gives a couple of examples. Uh, Barry Smith and Berit Brogard, the Danish philosopher, uh, wrote in 2003 that the fetus is inside, but not part of the pregnant woman. Uh, talking about human fetuses here, in the way that a tub of yogurt is inside your refrigerator. Oderberg um, writes that the embryo is an organizational unity that is not a part of its host. So you have quite strong um, expressions of the containment view in the literature. And Kingler says that that's quite wrong on her view. To clarify what she means by the claim that the foster is a part of the gravida, she says, I take this to be a claim that employs our common sense understanding of part whole relations, according to which, say, kidneys are parts of dogs. Um, to, to say that a kidney is merely inside a dog um, seems not to capture the sense in which the kidney is a kind of a vital part of that dog. And she says, for an example of how this might work, we might consider an ontology defending by Peter van Inwagen, which we'll come back to. But here's, here's the picture. Um, if a tub of yogurt is merely inside, it's merely contained within the refrigerator, you might think the tub of yogurt um, is, is not a kind of essential part or, 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 or vitally integrated into the, um, the, the refrigerator. Um, and there are some metaphysical questions you might ask about what is this way in which um, one artificial uh, product might be inside another artificial uh, substance or continuum like a fridge. Um, but that's that's the picture. Um, there are two directions you might look for an answer to settle this question, whether something is part of um, the organism or not. King says, we could look in uh, towards contemporary biology and philosophy of biology based in evolutionary theory, where much has been written on, on what it is to be an organism and what it is to be part of a mammalian organism in particular. Um, and Kingma thinks that the topological and uh, uh, immunological um, ideas of uh, an organism 
at least point in favour of the parthood view. Um, but she says you might also look towards accounts of the organism in, in metaphysics. And she says uh, she's going to look to biology, but there are also accounts of the organism in metaphysics. Um, and what I want to do now is just to give a sense of what you might call a ground zero for this debate, um, which is a deeper question, um, which is when are objects, whether they're fosters or cells, parts of an organism in the first place? Um, when are objects parts? Uh, here's Peter Simons, a philosopher in 1987, writing uh, in his book, Parts, A Study in Ontology. Um, he asked the question, what is it about an integrated whole in virtue of which it hangs together in the way that an arbitrary collection of some does not? In schematic outline, it seems as though the explanation must refer to a kind of relation between the parts of an integrated whole that they have to one another. So, for example, my, my, my clothes are not parts of my body because I can take them on and off. Um, then they, they may be near me, um, but they're not kind of in, integrate, integrated or functionally integrated in, in the same way that my skin is, for example. Um, that notion of hanging together is not a specific one, but should be given a formal characterization. He points to um, the philosopher Husserl, whose logical investigations treat many Aristotelian problems without mentioning the philosopher by name, who essays there a definition of a pregnant whole as one all of whose parts are con connected with one another by relations of foundation. Now, Peter Simons points out that that relation of foundation is not a, ter a term of contemporary use in 1987, but it really should be spelled out. What is that relation that things have to bear to one another in order to be parts of something? And in 1987, Peter van Inwagen, a philosopher, asked exactly that question. He, he asked it in terms of a question that was a bit more complicated than this, but it's basically about parthood. When is one thing part of another? Or more generally, when are um, cells parts of something? Um, and sorry to get deep here, but if you ask the question, when are objects parts in the abstract? When are objects, cells or fosters parts of anything? Um, you could say always, sometimes, or never. You could say, look, things are never parts of anything else. That would be the view of parthood as identity, that X is a part of Y, if and only if X is Y. In other words, proper parthood never occurs. Nothing is ever part, a part of anything else. And on that view, uh, the parthood view that Kingmer is promoting is just trivially false. Um, but there's another view that renders the um, bump discussion trivially false. Uh, true if you like and um, the parthood view would be trivially true um if parthood is cashed out in terms of containment or containment is cashed out in terms of parthood so there are some philosophers who think that what it is for x to be a part of y is for the region occupied by x to be a subset of or a subregion of the region of space occupied by y again i won't get into the weeds of this debate but this matters for how you're going to cash out um the containment view in particular, Barry Smith and Barrett Brogard inherit a um, an understanding of containment that they get from Akil Vazi's work on the niche, by the way. So um, for those who are interested, they explain that in their view, the refrigerator is one substance, an artificial substance. The tub of yogurt is a second artificial substance. And so if 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 they say the tub of yogurt is inside the refrigerator, what they mean is that it's, its location is a part of the location of the complex closure of the refrigerator. So again, this is one way in which this debate needs to be worked out. I don't want to get into the weeds of that. I just want to point out that Peter van Inwagen himself had a view um, according to which um, uh, we can make sense of the part of view. Uh, so in their essay, Composition as a Fiction, two philosophers explained van Inwagen's view uh, 
in this way. In his closely argued book, Material Beings, Peter Van Inwagen defends the view that several things compose a single thing just in case or only when their activity constitutes the life of an organism. On this view, the cells in your body or perhaps a, the particles in your body do indeed compose a single thing, namely you. Now, I've done a doctoral thesis on the logic of uh, Peter Van Inwagen's answer to the special composition question. I can tell you, unfortunately, that's a mistake. Uh, nonetheless, the view that they ascribe to Peter Van Inwagen is actually a view that he rejected. And it's a view according to which everything that's inside your body would be part, um, the, would be the parts um, of one thing, namely you. Uh, and that view is basically the containment view um, or the view of parthood as containment, which would render the uh, discussion moot, I think. What Van Inwagen actually said was slightly different. Um, he proposed the following answer to his question, when are objects parts? Uh, he said that objects compose a thing, uh, an organism in his case, if and only if their collective activity constitutes a life. Now, what is a life? A life is a special kind of self-maintaining event into which particles of matter or objects or cells are constantly being drawn and from which normally after a fairly short period of participating in the life, they're expelled. Now, the key question here for understanding Van Inwagen's view is understanding what counts as a life. And it's extremely important to get hold of this. He says not every event that involves the spread of a type of life in the mass term sense of life is a life in the count noun sense in the sense that's going to count for composition. The growth of a tumour, for example, a tumour is not an organism, it's not a parasite, and there is no self-regulating, self-maintaining event that is its life. The space occupied by a tumour is not filled by some one thing that fits into it exactly. It's a locus or a place within which a certain sort of thing is happening. The spreading of a certain sort of life in the mass term sense of life. This spreading out may be a self-maintaining event, but it is not well individuated. And despite its entirely biological nature, it is not a life. And we'll, we can come back to that question. He coins a locution that he borrows from a physiologist called Jay-Z Young in his 1971 work um, that was also picked up by David Wiggins, for those who, who know the history, talks about being caught up into uh, a living system. And Van Inwagen calls it being caught up into a life. So he spells out his way of thinking in ways that are interesting for the bump debate. He says to say that X is caught up into the life um, is to say that there are some Ys, some things whose activity constitutes a life, and, and X is one of those things. Now, if we were to accept that answer to, to the general, um, uh, sorry, to the special composition question, it would follow that X is a proper part of something if and only if X is caught up in a life. He adds a footnote. This presupposes that an organism is not caught up in its own life. Whether one talks of an organism's being caught up in its own life is presumably a matter of convention. If we adopted the convention that an organism was caught up in its own life, we should probably have to say that a thing is a proper part of something, i.e. something else, just in case it was caught up in a life other than its own. And for the rest of his book, he just adopts a convention that an organism is not caught up in its own life. Now, the reason I mention this is what does this mean for the bump debate? It means that Elsa Lane Kingman is exactly right when she says in a footnote, if you assume with Van Inwagen himself that fetuses are organisms, then the parthood view would require no reinterpretation at all. In other words, Peter Van Inwagen worked out the metaphysical situation um, that is required to make sense of the bump debate in the first place. For a thing to be part of something, for, for a, a fetus to be part of an organism, the fetus would have to be caught up into the life of the organism. 
the key question will be how many lives a thing can be caught up into. If you think about a particle being caught up in its own life, it could also be caught up into the life of a cell. And that cell could be caught up into the life of an organism. And the particles in that cell could in some way be caught up into the, the life of the organism itself. I think this is where the action's going to be in the next couple of years. The debate's going to shift, I think, to the individuation of lives. Um, how many lives can a cell or an object be caught up into? More precisely, how many lives can cells or fosters or, or if you have um, dizygotic twins, how many lives can the particles that make up those twins in the womb be caught up into? And I think that's where the debate's headed. Um, there are all sorts of ethical, moral and spiritual implications of this, but I'm going to leave it there. Um, I've said enough and I'd love to hear what you think of this debate that's been going on in London and I think is very interesting indeed. So thank you for listening. Uh, comments are welcome. I'll stop there. All right, Chris. Um, boy, you know, it. This, your talk is a celebration of why we need places like the Faraday and why we need this forum, right? I mean, we have philosophers talking about the metaphysics of pregnancy and we have at least one OBGYN. Um, I, actually, I might call out Lubna. Well, actually, I'll ask if anybody has any questions, but I'd love to hear what Lubna, what you, you have to say about all this because you're a fertility specialist and I should have primed you ahead of time. I should have said, hey, I want to hear what you think. Um, but uh, but now we all want to hear what you think because you're one of the preeminent fertility specialists at Yale. So what do you think? Well, thanks so much, Ben. Chris, wow. Um, what a tour de force in terms of opening minds. <laughs> um, so I come to this as a clinician, as a gynecologist, as a fertility specialist at a juncture in our field where the foster and the gravid we've got a third dimension and that dimension is who created that embryo which will be carried by whom right so the dynamics is so beyond just an embryo within a uterus it is about whose embryo uh, whose sperm whose egg whose body is carrying and the dynamics so and, and again, this is my naivety, so please ignore my, or rather tolerate my ignorance here. But as you were talking about metaphysics, to me, it seemed more like metachemistry rather than physics, hmm. because physics is finite and the explosive um, uncertainty of the catalyst, right? The reaction which takes us to places we cannot even anticipate. That's to me what biology is. And I'm also intrigued by, you know, you quoted so many references, so many thoughts. And again, putting on the table my ignorance, what struck me was all these philosophers were men who never experienced <laughs> pregnancy, right? And then I look back and think about my own, and now I'm talking about as a woman who had two pregnancies, two kids, two different phases of life, two different challenges, phases of life with experiences. And then I look at the personalities of my two kids and a part of me has questioned about how much is a gene, is a genome, is an epigenome, 
So mom is not just a container. How the psyche of the fetus and the embryo, there is this dynamic interrelationship which goes beyond a container within a refrigerator. It's a container on the back of a truck that is in a terrain. <laughs> and the container has fluid that is splashing based on the bumps, right? So, so, so much of the of the interrelationship goes beyond the concept of life to living, right? How, what do we call life? Is life all about certain chemicals? I don't, you know, difference between a live cell and an apoptotic cell based on certain cell markers. Is that life? So, so I, I almost feel that the conversation has to be so much beyond. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled by this conversation, but I'm intrigued by by the aspects that, that, so when I, as a clinician, I'm dealing with couples, with women who choose to use donor egg to create the embryo, what is going through there, those nine months of gestation? What is the experience of that gravid woman, a part of whom is, is continuing to the journey of acceptance? Versus what about that woman who chooses to carry an embryo that was a donated embryo? So there's nothing biologically hers, but the entire biology is hers because that baby wouldn't exist without her. So I'm just putting on the table these aspects to a conversation which goes so beyond the embryo and the container. I, I hope it made sense, but that's yeah. my... Ludna, I think you got to get on a plane and go to King's College London and ask all these people yourself. Chris, what do you think about that? Well, Ludna, um, what can I say? But yes, um, come and be part of the conversation. I would just um, say a word. Uh, I am a, a spectator in this debate. And Elsa Lane Kingma, um, she has been driving this. Um, Suki Finn, who I mentioned, is uh, she's been in New York and she's now in uh, the UK. Uh, this is, um, they're particularly as alive. To, I was part of a conference at the University of Dayton, Ohio, um, in September, uh, where the gendered aspects of epistemology are, are, are were front and center. Um, so yes, to all of that. Um, as to um, a brief comment on life and a life, I think we, the question is too coarse grained. Um, if we can't distinguish the processes of life from the life which is the life of an organism, then we'll never get going in the debate. Partly, we, we often say, when did life begin? Well, four million years ago, right? I mean, or, or, or maybe that's, an, that's a different question from when those processes were sort of individuating in a particular way um, that made a, the, the, were constitutive of the event which was the life of an organism. And I think that's, that's a subtle distinction between the processes of life and what counts as a life. Um, so I have a paper coming up at the Leverhulme Center for Science uh, for Life in the Universe in Cambridge. What counts as a life in the science of life? And I think that's a tricky question. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, Chris, I think if I may happened. add one, yes. if I may add one thing. So we are at a point where in an in vitro culture dish we can create all the cell lines that constitute a human, but they are in disarray. That is a life too. 
there is this right in vitro and there is these tumors dermoid cysts that are made up of biological cell lines that constitute the entire human that's their living cells but right but that promise of life in that mass of tissue is not there <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's that's right on. I mean, John Dupre and Anna Sofa Manka are really working on some of this processually. Um, maybe just a comment on the surrogacy matter. There's been you might be interested in some of the um, work that's been done by this bump group. You can find it at bump.group um, on ectogenesis and, uh, and and surrogacy particularly. I think one of the things that might be um, one of the ways in which the metaphysical issue here might affect the way legal and moral frameworks and, and clinical frameworks practitioners work with surrogacy or or, or, um, or cases of, um, uh, yeah, let's take surrogacy, um, would be by reframing what it is we're doing. So on the one hand, if you simply view, for example, um, uh, the container view being implicit in, in surrogacy models or even container dishes, um, you might suggest that what's going on there is, is not actually pregnancy, but it's something else. Um, or you might think that when you're implanting something, say, uh, my, my wife was considering being a surrogate at one point for um, friends and family. Um, and how do we think about what she's doing? Is it simply, as Elselaine Kingmas sometimes says, board and lodging, you know, for, for something that isn't really part of her? Or is it more like donating a kidney, something that will become part of her life and be caught up into her life and be nourished by her life? And then she will be giving it on to someone else in a such a way that it can be a life on its own. Um, I think those are the sorts of ways in which certainly the legal issues might be reframed. So if you think about the legal issues simply in terms of uh, the rights of autonomous individuals, well, the metaphysics of pregnancy is going to challenge the notion that we have ever been uh those independent um non-interfered with individuals in the way that our, much of, many of our legal systems have taken for granted um so so i i think it's not that you can draw a straight line from the metaphysics to the to the ethical and legal and moral frameworks but some of our understandings of how many lives we are caught up into mm -hmm. at the very origin of our existence right and in virtue of which we are who we are those are the ways in which i think we should start to think thank you and, and just one more couple of comments to add, Chris, is as you mentioned about surrogacy, right? So surrogacy, I, I think in the field of fertility world, surrogacy being a carrier for somebody, it's a different psychophysiological state than being cornered into needing to use another person's gametes to be the carrier of that pregnancy. So the psychological nuances are very different for those nine months of journey, right? The surrogacy is an altruistic phase state uh, and it may be en enhancing in of itself. I mean, the people who act as surrogates, there's some literature on that in terms of how fulfilling it is, that experience. But at the same time, the act of giving up, it's like, having a nursery, being a gardener, you know, a sapling you give away without that much, but a grown plant that you have nurtured and cared for. Maybe there are some people who would twinge at giving away the, the 
catered plant than the tiny sapling, you know? So the surrogate moms who have to then give up the newborn, um, but it's, it's a different driving psyche as opposed to the gravida who is choosing for her own sake, but the egg is not hers. And, and what is that journey? And where are the dyna and what does the maternal experience, how does it mold the fetus? So it's almost like the debate needs to be way more than life. Yes and a no, right? It has, it really is about living them. It, because you are modulating the life of that next generation through your experiences. And that's a perspective, yeah. Lubna, thank you for blowing our minds. Chris, what do you think about that? Is that, so is there a, a difference with the bump group say, if you're a surrogate carrying a fetus for somebody else, is that person a garden, I guess, Lubna, to use that metaphor? You're, is that person a gardener giving away the sapling? Is that categorically something different than a woman who says, implant somebody else's gamete within my uterus? Is that different than the surrogate in, in the sort of metaphysics of pregnancy? What, what do you think about that? I honestly, I have not thought enough about that, but I know that some people have. Um, and I wouldn't, I would just refer you to um, some of the work that people have done. Um, who is coming to mind? Uh, so I think Teresa Baron has um, a paper called uh, Nobody Puts Baby in the Container, uh, the fetal container model at work in medicine and commercial surrogacy. That's um, in the Journal of Applied Philosophy. There's, if you look at the bump group, I think Suki Finn has some work on the metaphysics of surrogacy. There's some ethical ones on ectogenesis. I would just refer you to, to there. It, it's well beyond my understanding or expertise, but I think thinking about what we're doing, um, really getting clear on the metaphysics of the situation is actually of, of value here. As we also think about the psychodynamics and the psychology and the phenomenology of attachment and the transformative nature of those profoundly ethical experiences. Um, but yeah, it's beyond my, my amateur expertise or, or anything like that. I, yeah. Yeah, boy, we have to, we, we're humbled before these questions, right? These are complicated questions. Sure. Anybody else have a thought or a question or Lubna, do you have any other thoughts to say? What a, you know, Lubna, it's a joy that you're here, right? I mean, this is like terrific. Thank you. Um, what a privilege. What a privilege, Chris. I mean, it's, it opens dimensions you don't even tap into, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and actually the image of, you know, the, the slide of the yogurt in the refrigerator I mean, the great irony, this is, this is like so crude. I feel like such a middle-aged guy who's never been pregnant, but literally right now, probably down the hall from where Lubna is sitting, there is a refrigerator yes. with gametes, you know, with zygotes yes. in the refrigerator, fermenting, not unlike yogurt. Yes. I mean, that's to be super crude. And then like, what does that mean? Are those... Is that yogurt, is, is, is that zygote, are they still a part of? So I would have to say on that, Ben, actually. Okay, go so ahead. 
So let's ben, solve that one at least. Well, well, Ben, when you came to the Faraday Institute, you gave this wonderful lecture on your work on Henrietta Lacks and uh, the curious case of Henrietta Lacks. I think you called it the reflections on uh, on that case. And I think precisely thinking about parthood um, as distinct from, say, personhood is going to be important here. Um, because it won't be immediately obvious, actually, what mere containment um, does or doesn't have to do with parthood. Um, or, or, for example, you could be in a fridge and part of the fridge, right? Depending how you think of part-whole relations. Or you, it would be consistent with merological nihilism, the principle that parthood is identity and nothing is ever a proper part of anything else, that you're inside of the fridge and you're not a part of anything else. You just Everything is what it is, and it's nothing. It's not a part of anything else. Um, the question of part-whole relations is actually far from trivial, um, and I think what you're um, raising with uh, um, with the case of Henrietta Lacks would be a different sense of one process being part of another process, um, or one temporal stage of an event being a temporal part of a, a much bigger event. So we might speak of um, broadly the two acts of a play as, as two parts of the play and that makes perfect grammatical sense and, and even metaphysical sense but you're speaking about parts in a different way than the bump debate is speaking about parts because they're talking about parts at a time the sense in which say my kidneys are part of me now um but they wouldn't be a part could, of me could if I... taken out of me in in that sense Chris, sorry thank if you I, if i may you know and this is where i'm having i'm struggling that's my the challenge is mine, <laughs> is too. that it's not, it, the, there is so much of osmotic communication. It's the play where the act of one player changes the act of the other, right? That it's a dynamic action. So the play where you're improvising all the time. So just like a mom has nausea of pregnancy, that is because of signals from the fetal placental unit where the my, my maternal biology reacts. So in that refrigerator, that container is emanating some aromas, maybe, that the, the environment of the refrigerator is changing. But then the refrigerator's temperature is altering the fermentation rate in the container, right? So it's more than just physical presence of one into the other. It is, there are such shared dynamics so that considering an architectural, it, this is a flex, it's a flux. Um, and, and I just want to make one other comment is that the gravita, so now we are in the, just like Ben mentioned, we have women who are non-pregnant, but they are pregnant because their embryos are stored in this freezer. And there is this dynamic relationship now, even before biology <laughs> reaches that stage. So it's a, it's an evolving world yeah it is um, lori i see i see lori a blue butterfly there and you turned off your mute which makes me wonder if you want to ask a question and so i invite you lori if you have something to say you can give it a shout uh if not i got another question <laughs> oh sorry i didn't know i turned it off um That's i'm okay. an old yale div alum and um please ask your question this is fascinating all right this is my provocative question i'm trying to be intentionally provocative so you had the slide where it was written by a philosopher who told the 
physicians that we were too materialistic, that we were too, in, too much focused on the body. And in fact, the accusation was, you know, hey, doctors, you're too materialistic. You're too focused on the body and the pathophysiology, but actually you're up to your neck in, in metaphysics. You physicians need to be more metaphysical. And, and my provocative, you know, probing question here is given everything that you just heard from Lubna and refrigerators and all this and surrogates and all this, do, you, do I wonder, and I wonder if you wonder this, do you think this metaphysics of pregnancy conversation is not materialistic enough, not physiologic enough? Because these are very important questions about, you know, the, the, the placental bond, the, the placental osmotic gradient and intermingling of personhood and parthood um, that have immediate implications around ethics um, and, and theology. So that's my question. Do you think the metaphysics of pregnancy question needs to be more physic and less meta? What's your take on that? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, I, I, I think this, this is a two-way street and it works both ways. So I think um, I'm inclined to say yes. I, I would say that I don't think there are immediate implications, but it does change the way you would think about some other um, moral, legal, and even theological issues about parts. Um, persons becoming parts and parts becoming persons. Uh, end of life is just as, as important there. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd need to think about that. Um, I don't think, I th I, maybe maybe the short answer is yes. I mean, I, I think um, that more attention needs to be paid to, if we're going to go down the uh, Van Inwagen route, that there's an organicist principle of when parthood occurs, parthood occurs when something's caught up in a life, well, then you, you, to biology, you must go in some sense to understand that notion of life when, when things are caught up in a life or when they aren't. Um, that's a hard question. Uh, I don't think you can do it in the abstract, certainly. Um, but what you could do in the abstract is maybe think a little about um, the way we're maybe imagining the natural in in the image of, of our artifacts. So there's a there's a perennial problem, I think, of thinking about uh, what I would call natural continuance, things that continue through time, in terms of our latest artifact, our latest artificial continuant. So there would be nothing wrong, I think, with thinking about uh, the containment of gametes in pots in refrigerators. Um, refrigerators, except insofar as we then reimagine the natural continuant, the organism itself, as basically a basically a machine, basically an artifact. Um, I think that's that's the tricky thing. Um, and there's a perennial temptation. People in, I think, the old days used to think of the human uh, mind a little bit like a catapult that could fling from one thing to the next. Then you know, in recent times, we've sort of the, the the mind is a computer. We've thought about 
human persons as com com computers and things like that. And, and the latest technology comes along and now we're thinking about AI. It, it seems like a perennial problem is taking the latest technology and, and imagining that that's the way to think about the natural organism. I think that's that's maybe a problem. But rambling thought from a fellow who is out of his depth. <laughs> Chris, thank you, thank you, thank you. You have uh, brought a, a boatload of provocative questions from your side of the pond to New Haven, Connecticut and beyond. This is just so wonderful, provocative, thought-provoking. Um, okay, everybody, our homework is at the next conference we go to, whatever that conference is, cardiology, New Testament, biblical ethics, the next nonprofit board meeting, everyone is challenged to just drop the phrase metaphysics of pregnancy, wherever you are. That'll be the that's the that's the challenge. I, there's an internist program director on the call. Everybody. Oh, there's a, a mental health <laughs> chaplain. Okay. Men, metaphysics of pregnancy. Everybody, um, the, our next talk is going to be on Monday, January 29th. And it's this wonderful fellow, uh, Pui Him uh, uh, Ip. Uh, and it will be about Basil of Caesarea and the first hospitals. Also, a colleague from the Faraday, a completely different topic. <laughs> Everybody, well, I, would say, I would say that I've been reading Basil um, on the Hexameron with uh, Pui and a few others, and a physicist, actually. And we, he has a lot to say about the metaphysics of uh, pregnancy and Aristotle and the generation of animals. So it's quite interesting how people <laughs> been thinking about this. Okay. Well, folks... January 29th, everyone's got to tune in for uh, more provocative, great stuff. Chris, thank you so much. Everybody, thank you, so much, Luna, thank you for your thoughts. Thank you so uh, much. See you in a couple of weeks, everybody. Take Be care. In touch. Yeah, bye.